person next to you? How many of you actually meant it? No. Oh, why was there more hands that went up that second time? There, that was, that was. Hey, hopefully you really did mean that, and I am sincere each week when I do say I'm so glad to see you. Thankful that we can gather in this place that you can gather online, and it is a refreshing and encouraging reality to be able to do that. I'm going to ask you to do one, or one of two things here as we gather before we jump into the messages. In the seat backs, there are cards that look similar to this. It says Forward Revisited. Or you take out your phone and scan the QR code on the back of the seats there. And then you'll click a button that says Pledge Here. You'll have to click it, uh, two different buttons that say Pledge Here. And I want to talk to these two different things that are before us, this pledge card or the other one. The last number of weeks, we have revisited our Forward campaign, which be, we began last May. And every year, we want to revisit it to remind the church of where we're at and what we're doing. And last number of weeks, told you about that Forward campaign shared with you the impact of the last year. We talked about wanting to, um, just desiring to see Jesus move in a mighty way. And I shared with you different numbers of, of increase in attendance, but most importantly, through salvation and also baptism. We talked about how God's been doing a great work here and through that. And I also encourage you to pray about your participation. And so today, we ask that, it, whether it be today or this coming week, that you uh, would fill out the pledge card for the remaining two years of our pledge, and then uh, you can also do it online. Those are two different options for you. And really what we are asking is, who is your one? Because why we're doing what we're doing is about salvation, people meeting Jesus. So who is your one? Just the first name. Who's that person that you're praying for, you're investing in, you're spending time with, that you would love for them to know Jesus? And then also, if you're led, no pressure, coercion, shame, guilt. If you want to make a pledge towards a project that we have going on, uh, just uh, beyond this, uh, this temporary wall out there, we would love for you to be a part. And if you want to find out more information about it, there are a bunch of these booklets around that we had last year that you are welcome to take with you. And also want to remind you and encourage you, we have prayer cards up front and around of how we've been praying and how to continue to pray for what is happening. Now that is just a tool out there that is going to be used just as the sanctuary in the 90s was built as a tool for ministry and the same thing with the education wing in the 80s. And it's ultimately, it is all about people. And so we ask that you will continue to pray that if God is leading you to be a part, that you would fill this card out. You can drop it in the boxes in the back. Or like I said, online, just submit that. And uh, we'll make sure um, that that will get into the hands of the people that need that. Now, something specifically I was asked to uh, remind you of, on the pledge card, on the back of the card, there are two check boxes. One says this is a brand new pledge. And the other one says that I am changing my pledge. And so please make sure that you identify that on the card when you turn that in. That is very helpful to our team. And whether you're changing your pledge as an increase or a decrease, that's fine. We understand life happens. So uh, maybe something happened the last year where you need to decrease. That helps us plan. And maybe you want to increase because, hey, you see something's actually happening out there. And uh, you want to be a part of that. So we encourage you to do that. And thank you for your participation and what God's doing. And as uh, we continue to think about that, a um, number of weeks ago, God impressed something on my heart regarding the building and regarding this campaign. 
and wanted to share that this morning with you. And, and as I was thinking about it, there are spenders in our world and there are savers. So who are the spenders in the room? You just freely spend. My wife shot her arm right up. It's very true. Who are my savers? I am raising my hand with this. Wow, there is a lot of savers here. So that is, that is me. Uh, I have a hard time spending money at all. I cringe, you know, whether, whatever that may be. Um, and often, you know, as the example of Joanna and I, we end up married together uh, for what's good and what's bad about that at the same time. So when this building first started the construction out there, the first week or two, we traveled to Florida to visit Joanna's dad and spent some time with him down there. And one evening, Joanna and I, we had a date night, and we went down to Naples and uh, spent some time in the city there, and we decided we wanted to go to the beach and watch the sunset. And so we didn't want to go right at the pier where all the tourists are, so we went a little bit further down the beach and went in where all the neighbors were hanging out, and these are just beautiful homes right on the water there on the Gulf. And uh, so we sat, and we talked to a few neighbors, and we just watched, and there was a house that was for sale right behind where we sat, just a beautiful home. So I looked it up, and uh, in my mind, I'm thinking of the construction that's here and uh, the cost of the construction and the number. And um, So I looked it up, and this 11,000-square-foot house, tiny house, right? Just small. I mean, is going for $88 million. Yeah, exactly, right? So there I am on my date night, I have to confess, I was thinking about this project, and, and I had this impression. You ever have those moments where um, God just says, listen to me now, type of reality? And he said, like, I felt this impression. I didn't hear an audible voice. I felt this impression that you're impressed with an $88 million house and all these neighbors who could just, you know, transfer the funds and pay off this building with ease. You're focusing on that, and you're impressed by that, just like the, ooh, for the $88 million house. I had this impression of God just saying, I own it all. I am God of the universe. I created. I own it. It's mine, and I'm the one who provides. I stopped thinking about the project at that moment and just rested in that and enjoyed the sunset and enjoyed the beauty. And we can look at this, and it is a big number, it is a big reality, and we're walking in faith in that, but we serve a God who has all the resources in the universe at his hands, and he desires to use all of us. He desires for us to be a part, and I am thrilled with what God has been doing, and just humbled in that moment, reminded of the abundance of God. A number of weeks ago, we were reminded to be a people of generosity, we talked about how we bring our limited resources, and you may feel like, I can't contribute much, uh, whether it's financially or I can't contribute much to um, serving in the church in whatever capacity. But we serve a God who invites us to bring what he's given to us and to set it back into his hands and allow him to multiply the work. That's what we looked at in the, the book of Acts a number of weeks ago. And so today, we were reminded of God doing a work in and through us. And I want to share a story briefly of really why we're doing a building, why we exist as a church, what we're about. And it's really, again, it's about people. It's about people knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus. And we have a lot of different tools. And, and this is a story that I was just encouraged by as a number of you have shared stories of your ones recently. And so allow me a few moments to share this story. I met Skip 
Wow, that was like that was like a that would have been a cool dramatic effect if I had not responded to that, right? You know, just the lights lowering. Uh, I have no idea what that was. Anyways, I met Skip in September. This person wrote 1981. He was the first person in my freshman year at Michigan Tech. First person I met in my freshman year at Michigan Tech. We were assigned to the same house in the dorms. He met me on my way in. We became close friends and one of many drinking buddies. I had chosen to go to Michigan Tech to get away from my parents and away from God. I was running. It was as far as I could go away from home and still pay in-state tuition. Good move, right? I was 17 years old, and that was my plan. Pete, my first roommate, uh, Pete was my first roommate. He was my penance, and I'm sure God was looking at me laughing. Pete immediately looked at me from our loft and said, do you know Jesus? This person wrote, God, you cannot be serious. Pete was persistent, and Skip and I drank. He dragged us to campus crusade meetings, and over time, we became roommates in an off-campus house with a couple other friends. Just before I accepted Christ on New Year's Eve 1982, I woke up face down in a snowbank, drunk, and decided that was not the path I wanted to walk in my life. I left Michigan Tech, and life happened. And over the next 40 years, I married, had kids, got divorced, and remarried. Skip also got married and had a daughter. They lived in South Carolina. He continued to drink at home and while camping. We ran into each other maybe a dozen or so times over the years, and every time I would ask him, Skip, are you going to church? Skip, are you still drinking? Nope. Yep. Six months or so ago, I got a call from Skip. I could barely understand him, but I got the gist. His alcohol consumption had finally taken a toll. They had found spots in his liver, and his liver was shutting down. The poisons in his blood were affecting his brain, and he was developing dementia. His prognosis was not good. Over the last six months, Diane and I had frequent conversations. Should I go? Shouldn't I go? I just wasn't hearing answers, and I decided I was not going. I just never felt the time was right. I texted with Skip and his wife, Kim, several times, and Skip's condition worsened. He was going to be in hospice. On Tuesday, about three weeks ago, I was working in my home office when someone hit me in the chest with a two-by-four. You have to go. It's time. Huh? It's time. You have to go. I texted Diane and said, I have to go to South Carolina now, this weekend. Diane made plans. My plane uh, at hotel reservations, and I rented a car. I would leave Friday evening. We'll get to the hotel after midnight, spend the day, and fly back home Saturday night. I would have about six hours. I got to Skips around 9 a.m. Saturday morning, and he was in his living room in a hospital bed. He was not lucid, and you could tell time was close. Kim and I talked about tech, about memories with Skip, about Skip's life, not all great memories. About noon, I was running out of ideas, out of time, and out of hope. Why was I here? Skip did not appear to be there anymore. What should I do? As I sat there, I thought about tech, 42 years earlier and about our history. I did the only thing I could think of. I called Pete. Pete said, Drew, let's pray. Pete told me there's evidence that people who are in comas can hear and, and can respond. And so Pete told me that what I needed to do is what I went there to do. Pray the sinner's prayer and put it in God's hand. He said, you have to do this. So I went back into the house and Kim went to take a walk and I looked at Skip. All of a sudden, his eyes were bright. There was recognition. And he looked at me as if to say, what are you doing here? I said to Skip, I didn't come all this way to sit with you for six hours. You know what I'm here for, right? Skip said, Yep. Are you going to see Jesus? Are you going to heaven? I think so. This person said, there's no I think about it. You need to be positive, and I know you can't really say sentences, so I'm going to read the sinner's prayer, okay? Yep. And we prayed the sinner's prayer, and when I finished, I looked at Skip. 
do you know where you're going now? Yep. Skip passed away on Tuesday, three days after I flew home. I talked to Pete a couple days later, and I thanked him. I told him that if he had not been faithful to Jesus 40 years ago, Skip might not be in heaven today. If Diane had not said to me so many times, do you want to go, Skip may not be in heaven today. If God had not blessed Diane and I with the means and the timing to be able to fly to South Carolina on a few days' notice, Skip may not be in heaven today. God had a plan for Skip's life. He was calling him for over 40 years. And he used a man that had been pretty broken recently. He used Pete, and he used a faithful wife to bring Skip home. I wish Skip's life had been lived a bit differently, but I know where Skip's eternity is, and I can't wait to see him again. And this morning in first service, Drew Peters came forward, and if you know Drew Peters, he's very tall, and he turned the highest light bulb <laughs> up there. And he did that in honor of Skip's decision to follow Jesus, even on his deathbed. And so today, I read that to remind us of the why and to be an encouragement that God is doing work in and through people. That person, even if it's been 40 years that you've been praying for them and encouraging them and speaking Jesus, keep at it. You never know what God's going to do. That seed, that first conversation, you never know what God's going to do with that. And so this morning, we celebrate uh, Skip's decision, and we celebrate uh, that this morning he's with Jesus. And so let's give God praise this morning here. The church in Acts had a very clear mission and purpose and intention to share Jesus. Jesus was the why and still is the why. And we've been walking through the book of Acts these last number of weeks looking at this early church. And I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6, do an overview of chapter 7, and then encourage you with a couple challenges here at the end. Really, the challenges are, have, have you surrendered your life to Jesus for the very first time through salvation like Skip? And then also, whatever you're walking through right now, have you surrendered that reality to God? Or is it your own power that you're walking in? So in Acts chapter 6, it begins this way. Verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, this is a good thing, right? More people are following Jesus. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so the church is growing. This is good. Now you've got these Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews that are growing and that are part of this body. And there's also the Hebraic, the Aramaic-speaking Jews there. Now they both follow Jesus. They were both disciples of Jesus, but they viewed each other differently. So the Hebraic Jews saw the Hellenistic Jews as these like compromised reformers that were coming in, trying to change things. And they didn't look very highly upon them. Where the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking, saw the Hebraic Jews as holier-than-thou traditionalists. So you had these two competing views going on. And not only was that reality there, they were worshiping, they were pointing to Jesus, this unifying fact, but now there's an issue there's a complaint. There's something that's lacking. And they bring it up. That there was not food being served. That there was not distribution of that. So the money and the food, there was this conflict that was going on. Now, and it's not necessarily an intentional wrong that was going on. Rather, it was something that was overlooked. And how often something overlooked can be misconstrued or miscommunicated. And then there's fighting that goes on here. So the 12, they do this. 
they, in verse two, it says this, the 12 gathered with all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in, of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the 12 are saying, we need to keep the primacy of the word and prayer, but we cannot neglect the need that is going on here. So let's get people together that can meet the need, because both are important. Both are important. The word of God and prayer, and the need that is there for the people. And so they make this decision, and this is a show of good leadership because we could at this point read something radically different that maybe in the book of Acts it could say something like this, and the word of God was compromised and the disciples divided amongst themselves. So this could have been the end or it could have been the first church split right here with this issue. But rather in the book of Acts, Luke shows us a good decision that's made. They didn't minimize the complaint or the need they rather brought them together because Jesus prayed for unity in the church. And so often what we think about when we think of unity is really we mistake it for uniformity. We all have to think the same, act the same, look the same, be the same. No, the church of Jesus Christ is extremely diverse, but rather we're unified around Jesus. Jesus's life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And one of the things that I love about this church and the DNA and the culture of this church is that Pastor Gerton from the very beginning said that's what it's about. It's about Jesus. We'll talk about all of these other things, but Jesus is the center. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection and how we follow after Jesus. Here was Jesus' prayer and there is this unity that's there. But we as people, we love to divide. We love to just split things up. Peter Rollins, he tells a story about an individual who was shipwrecked on a deserted island, this uninhabited deserted island, and he lived there alone for 10 years. Finally, there was a, a passing aircraft that went over and saw him there. And so they came and they were there to rescue him, and they asked him, they said, hey, can we see what you've developed over these last 10 years? And so he said, absolutely. And so he took these, this rescue crew into uh, an opening there, and there were three buildings that were set up. And so they were asking him about the buildings, and the first building he pointed to, and he said, this is my home. I, I built this right away. When I first got here, I needed shelter, and, and this is where I lived. And they asked him, well, what about this other building here? And he said, that's my church. He said, that's where I go to church. I worship there every week. And they said, well, what about this third building here? And the man who was there who had been stranded was really agitated. He said, don't even talk about that place. That's where I used to worship. <laughs> it's easy to complain. It's easy to divide. It is easy to separate oneself. It is harder to unify. It is harder to keep the thing the thing. The apostles, they listened, they shifted what they were doing, and they kept their focus on the prayer and the word along with the service. They preserved the unity in this. And in verse 5, it says this proposal pleased the whole group. People are happy with this decision. And we see that there were seven that were chosen and they were presented before individuals. And verse seven says this. It says, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Why? 
because they were focused on what was most important, Jesus. Those with the complaint, they didn't go off and grumble and complain and talk amongst their own selves and develop this group and just, you know, spew hatred towards the others and post on social media. They, rather, they took their complaint to those that could do something about it. And they trusted the apostles. Those who received the complaint didn't get defensive and have their ego and their pride attacked. They considered it and they thought, hmm, yep, they're right. The seven who were chosen stepped up to meet the need that was there amongst the people. The apostles responded to that need. And the church here, this is a, maybe you've read over this a number of times, this was a huge moment that they averted disaster. I mean, there's really two things that could have happened here. Is there could have been division and there could have been distraction. Is the church could have divided over of like, well, you take care of your group, we'll take care of this group, and we'll just go our separate ways. Or there could have been a distraction. I, I wonder with the apostles and some of the conversation, when they ultimately said, no, we need to focus on the word and prayer, I'm guessing some of the apostles said, but we need to care for these needs. So let's, let's do both. Or let's just pause this for now, and then we'll take care of this need, and then we'll get back to this, a prayer and the word. The church avoided division and avoided distraction. And how we as a church as the part of the church, the body of Jesus Christ, need to be really intentional, to be unifiers around Jesus, avoiding division and avoiding distraction. So we continue to serve Jesus and serve each other. So we go back to Scripture, and then they lived happily ever after, right? Right? No, not even close. The next verse, Stephen, it says in verse 8, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Excellent. Then, in verse 9, opposition arose. And this is not good again. Again, it's this back and forth, this cycling that we talked about the first couple weeks. How there's the preaching of the word and then there's opposition and then God comes in and does a work and then it cycles back through again and again. Stephen is sharing the gospel and, gospel, and the people confront him. And the crowds are going back and forth. And so some in the crowd, they stir up others and they start to share lies about Stephen. So they take him before the Sanhedrin and he, in, verse, or in chapter 7, he gives this speech and he essentially walks through the history of Israel. And he's walking through and I can, I can imagine that those who were there listening were like, yeah, yep, yep, this is true, yep, yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Then he gets to the end. And he says, uh, so you rejected Jesus, you rejected the prophets, and you're rejecting God. That did not keep the crowd with him, right? In verse 51 of chapter 7, it says this. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. So here we are, the religious leaders of the day. The, the law keepers. Stephen's like, yep, you rejected him. You're not listening to the Spirit. You're not listening to God. And in verse 54, in the King James Version, it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. 
Have you ever been in a conversation with someone? And you're going back and forth, you're talking, and, and you get to that moment in the conversation where you're agreeing, 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 and then something hits you, like cuts you to the heart. In that moment, it's a big, big moment of which direction you're going to go. Because you have to determine, why is that hitting me? Why is that cutting to the heart? What truth is in there that I need to respond to? Is the Spirit of God telling me right now that I may not be right? That I need to reconsider my thoughts? And we have that moment where we can humbly say, God, thank you for speaking to me and cutting me to the heart in this. Or we get angry and we reject it. And we push it away. I have none of that. I want to hear that. I mean, we've all been there. We've, both, we've responded both ways. Sometimes we're like, yes, Lord, you're right. And other times, no, this can't be true. Doesn't fit what I believe, what I want. What we see here with the religious leaders, those who were in authority. In verse 54 in the NIV, it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. They wanted to hear none of it. They wanted no conviction from the Spirit. They were right. And this is what happened. They rushed them, and they were out of control. There's a word that's used in the Scripture, this uh, ormao, which means to set in rapid motion, to stir up, to incite, to urge on, to start forward, to rush. It's the same word that is used when Jesus cast the, the demons into the pigs, and if you remember the story, they just run off the edge of the cliff. It's that same concept here, the same use of the word, just where anger is there, and it causes this quick response. Want nothing to do with anything else. In verse 57 of chapter 7, as they covered their ears, at this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. This was not a legal action. This was not the Sanhedrin who oversaw the law. This was not a legal choice. It was this anger that overcame them. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at a feet, the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, who wrote to the New Testament churches. 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. What do we do when we encounter things that just do not settle well? That we don't want to hear. What do we do when we encounter suffering or pain? I mean, as human beings, we try to push it away. We try to live lives of comfort. I mean, that... For many, that is the goal of life, whether you articulate it or not, is comfort. I want to be comfortable, whatever that is. What I eat, what I drive, where I live, the places I go, how I take care of myself. I want comfort. But growth involves pain. Growth involves suffering. Think of physical bodies. Is that our son is often complains, or not often, sometimes complains about his legs being sore as he's growing physical growth that's happening. If you have ever spoken to another human being, there's relational pain or suffering 
because you don't always really see things eye to eye, but it is a refining process if we allow it to happen. Spiritual growth, we talk about iron sharpening iron or refining fire. Those are not soft, peaceable realities. This is pain and change. Dr. Dr. Samuel Chan, he has an equation that he talks about when it comes to growth. He says that growth equals change. So when we grow, we change, right? But when we change, there's inevitably loss. When we change, there's loss of um, maybe relationships or realities, whatever it may be. And loss involves pain. And so he says, therefore, if we want to grow, growth equals pain. We don't want to think about that. We want to grow in comfort. But I'm imagining if you were to look back at your life and you were to talk about some of the times you have grown the most, they've probably been some of the most painful times of your life. I want to tell you this morning that pain is not the enemy. What we see in the book of Acts with the church is that they went through pain and suffering and it grew the church. Notice that as you read it. When they face opposition, it's when the church grows. When they're comfortable and calm, much like the American church, or the church in Europe in years past, is comfort has not brought growth. Dr. Brand, Paul Brand and Philip Yancey wrote a book called The Gift of Pain. And Dr. Brand, he worked with leprosy patients in India and the United States, and he tells a story in this book about a four-year-old girl who came to his office, and she had dislocated her ankle, and uh, as he examined this bloody bandage around her ankle, she sat there bored. He is moving her ankle and examining it, and she could care less. What they realized is that she had a genetic condition that did not allow her to experience pain. And he told other stories of, of what they experienced. And he talked about this little girl being this human metaphor for what a life is without pain. She was damaging her body, much like lepers who do not have sensations of pain. Therefore, the infections and, and uh, whatever it may be burns, you can't tell that there is something wrong and therefore to heal it. Pain may just be a gift. We don't want to think about that. But the Apostle Paul seemed to make peace with pain and suffering in 2 Corinthians 12. He said this. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, catch that. Let's not breeze over that, all right? Paul did not just say, sweet, give me pain and suffering. He's pleading much like you have. If you've walked through pain and suffering or you're walking through it or you're entering it, I'm guessing you pleaded with God. Just three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. What? Why? I'm going to boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. I'm going to tell the world that I, I am not as strong as I want them to think I am, that I do not have it together as much as I want them to think it. Why? Because where we encounter the power of God. And verse 10 says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
doesn't make sense in the world we live in. Paul comes to a level of understanding of what pain and suffering is. And there's really two ways that we can look at pain and suffering. Is one, God can remove that pain and suffering. And sometimes he does. We can think of situations where there's been prayer for whatever it is, and that situation has been uh, healed, or the person's been healed, or the situation has been resolved. It's like it's just been removed. And I don't know why that happens. And there's other times that it's not removed, that that person dies or that suffering or that pain continues on. And, and I don't know why that happens. I don't know why sometimes it's removed and sometimes it's not. And I'm not even going to pretend that I know that. It's cheap for me to pretend that. Or if it's not removed, God can strengthen us. I don't understand that, but like Paul, we lean into the strength of God. Why Paul says, power is made perfect in my weakness. God, I'm weak in this area. I'm broken in this area. I, I have zero control or I have very limited control. I, I, God, I don't get this. I don't know what this is, but I'm going to rest in your strength. Charles Spurgeon said, the worst thing that can happen to any of us is to have a path that's made too smooth. I mean, we want that. I want that, right? I want that smooth path. But then he says, one of the greatest blessings the Lord ever gave us was the cross. And Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, did not have a smooth path at all. But he continued to trust in his Father. Jesus, pled, he was pleading with God the Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross is what he's saying. But not my will, but your will. Like, I, I can't do this, but it's by your power I can. Because removing the suffering is not the end goal like our westernized culture wants it to be. Rather, it's meeting God and allowing God to reveal himself in the middle of our suffering. Consider this interaction with Jesus and Peter as we wrap up. Matthew 16, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus is saying suffering and pain is coming. Yep, I'm the son of God, but suffering and pain is coming. Peter, who's us, who's me, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. No, 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 no. No, you, no, suffering, no, it can't be. It can't be. You're the son of God. No. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind and concern, in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter wanted to take away all the pain and suffering. That's human. That's me. That's my flesh. I want all your pain and suffering to go away. My heart breaks when you tell me stories and situations. I pray with you and pray for you. I carry that. And I want it to go away. But Jesus is like, that's merely human concerns. Jesus took this moment in verse 24. He said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
and whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So we can strive for comfort. That's a worldly way. Or we can say, God, strengthen me. Lord, reveal your spirit to me in the middle of this thing. We're going to close in just a moment with a song, and the team's going to come in just a moment. But I want you to reflect on this for a moment. Maybe for you, you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, so you're out there dealing everything on your own. Maybe today is your day where, like, like Skip, that you say yes to Jesus. I am a sinner. I can't do it on my own. Jesus, I receive your forgiveness today. Lord, thank you for saving me, the work you did on the cross, and I want to walk with you. This confession of sin and this receiving of the forgiveness, maybe that's you. Or maybe for you, if you put up that next slide, is maybe, what is it, what's that area or areas where you're experiencing pain and suffering? And how have you responded to it? Have you invited or welcomed God into it? Have you blamed God or even ignored God in that situation? And the second question there is, in what ways is God calling me to surrender to him, to trust and to learn from him in the middle of this? So as the team comes forward, would you take a moment to reflect, to pray, and then as we sing this last song, that it would be a prayer in the middle of whatever it is that you're walking through. So would you just take a moment to pray, to reflect, to talk to God, to allow him to minister to you?